I'm Mia Clark, host and producer of Dreams of Black Wall Street. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Especially if you want to help us get the word out about this history, these stories, and the work we're doing. Thank you so much. we left off with author, historian, and Northwestern African-American studies professor Leslie Harris explaining how the question of whether or not slavery will end became a central theme between both Blacks and Whites, and in some cases, one another, during the years of 1785 to 1827, particularly with regard to Quakers becoming the first group of Whites as a religious denomination to side with Blacks in their disdain for slavery, as well as ideals of freedom that seemed to be a direct contradiction to slavery and really became highlighted during the Revolutionary War. Rarely do discussions about slavery include New York's sordid past with the institution. It's hard for many people to conceptualize the cultural melting pot that it is today as being as integral to the slave trade and slavery in North America as it once was. Just as in the South, black slave labor was a fact of the daily survival and economic pursuits of Europeans in the colonial North. In fact, when New York decided to emancipate blacks, it codified what was known as gradual emancipation, essentially assigning an expiration date to slavery. In this case, it took nearly 30 years to reach. Slavery was so intertwined with the city's economy as well as the slave-dependent economy of the South that New York's became the chief North American slave port and economic center, something that Europeans went to great lengths to make sure they did not have to immediately part ways with. So much so that even white New Yorkers who supported the manumission of enslaved Blacks and their eventual assimilation into society as free people, in a seemingly bizarre paradox, owned slaves themselves even as some of them, such as those in what was known as the Manumission Society, actually spent time working towards the goal of Manumission for enslaved people of African descent. Most Europeans of this era were not comfortable with the idea of formerly enslaved Blacks immediately having free reign to live, work, and play when and where they pleased. After all, even most of those who supported Manumission still believed Blacks and people of African descent to be an inferior race. By gradually working towards a society without slavery, they could better control how Blacks existed in society. And many took extreme measures to make sure that the existence of people of African descent was not that much better than slavery. Because of slavery's prominent role in New York society, it became the foundation of how New Yorkers would view race, class, and even what it meant to be free. Slavery's final years in New York saw both slaves and free Black people and people of African descent living side by side as more Blacks either negotiated for their freedom or reached the age in which they qualified for freedom. This was well before the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. New York was the next to last state in the North to abolish slavery before New Jersey. At this time, more Blacks continued to flee the South, where slavery was still legal, and settled in Manhattan for various reasons. Many thought it was their best chance at finding work, 
And for those who escaped bondage, many found it easier to blend into a city with other free Blacks. Life for Blacks in Manhattan, however, was difficult. And while some, including the Black elite, were able to carve out a space for themselves and their families in which they could have a decent livelihood and live with some semblance of dignity, most lived in poverty as part of, again, an underclass and were treated as such. Once again, author, historian, and professor Leslie Harris. Slavery is ending in other northern colonies. New York and New Jersey are the last two to end slavery, but both whites and some blacks are beginning to push against slavery, to use the language of the American Revolution to say that slavery is wrong. So you have that continuing. There's a rebellion in Albany in the 1790s, but this is really a moment where more and more whites, not that many, but a, a critical group of whites are pushing for laws for gradual emancipation to end slavery. And the New York law gets passed in 1799. That law and then the New York Manumission Society, we began to have the first collaboration between blacks and whites in terms of ending slavery, dealing with racism and improving the status of black people. And I was actually going to say the man, I was going to bring up the Manumission Society. And what was so interesting about them is some of them owned slaves, even though they were pushing for the gradual end of slavery. Absolutely. And I think this is linked to so many things. One is that gradualism really is gradual. <laughs> you know, if you, you know, these, these are the children born to enslaved women would be free in their early to middle 20s, depending on whether or not they were female or male. And so if you think about, say, an enslaved woman who's born on July 3rd, the day before the law takes effect, 1799, who could still be giving birth in 1830, so her children are not going to be free for decades. They have to go through that 20-year thing. They're not going to be free until the 1850s. So for some, you know, the New York Magnificent Society folks were wealthy, and for them, Owning enslaved people was both a labor source, but also it's an investment. And some of them continue to buy slaves even after the law has been passed. So they see it as a status symbol, perhaps. So it takes Black activism again to free people ahead of the law. Black people began negotiating with their enslavers to say, this law has passed. I mean, we don't know what the actual conversation was, but can I become free? Can we work something out? Sojourner Truth, famous example, as Isabella von Wagner, she negotiates with her owner to work for a certain number of years so that she can gain her freedom and the owner agrees to this. Some people, of course, just run away. And some of them, when they run away, this is growth for the New York City population because they run to New York where there are more people, there's more anonymity. So they're leaving rural areas and coming to New York. Or they might go to Philadelphia, which also has a gradual emancipation law. So it really is gradual emancipation, and it is a fairly conservative form of anti-slavery activism. Rooted in it also is this idea that Black people need to be trained up for freedom, right? That we have to make sure that they go to school, that they are morally fit, all of these things. 
So that's the second, I guess, the second big political activism. But the radical abolitionists who grow partly out of that moment, but also out of a realization that slavery is going to continue in the South, they argue very differently. They think that gradual emancipation is wrong. They argue for immediate emancipation. They publicize the violence that's happening on plantations in the South, which isn't to say there wasn't violence in the North as well in slaveholding places. But in the South, they argue that when you know that you're sinning, you don't gradually stop sinning. They're very religious. You, know, you stop sinning immediately if you can. And so why should slavery be any different? So that is quite radical for the time. And they also, the thing about them too, is that they argue both for ending slavery and for racial equality. So they try to live into a place where Black and white activists work together as equals imperfect, problematic, they struggle, no question, but they at least state the goal. And I think for me, they're one of the true, first true kind of interracial collaborators. You know, they're like a precursor to some of the 1960s civil rights collaborators. We have blacks and whites often coming from religious bases saying, well, how do I become an activist? How do I partner with these people? How do I learn about their culture? How do I understand what their goals are for freedom? What are Black people's goals for freedom? So I, I find that it's just a fascinating time period. And, and it's so interesting because at this time that New York is beginning to talk about ending slavery, it is still, and particularly New York City, wholly dependent on the slaveholding South <laughs> for the vitality of its economy. Everything would have ground to a halt almost in New York City and even other parts of New York. Yeah, these, you know, again, the radical abolitionists are very idealistic. These are people who boycott slave-produced goods. They have no sugar. They don't drink coffee. They don't eat sugar. They don't wear cotton. I mean, they really take it all the way there. And as you know, when you have a political movement, you need people sometimes in that vanguard, the most radical, to really call attention to this problem. So many people call New York the most Southern of the Northern cities because of its close ties with Southern slaveholders. Lots of Southerners come to New York for business. The banks in New York are connected, as we've learned fairly recently, how connected banks and the early insurance agencies are connected to Southern slaveholders. There are all kinds of connections, economic connections, and I think family connections, which we probably need to do a little bit more research on, North and South. We sometimes think of the Mason-Dixon line as this hard and fast line and people never cross back. No, people were traveling a lot white people a lot back and forth across the Mason-Dixon line and participating. And so it is a very conservative place. It's much more conservative, for example, than Philadelphia, which has this large population of Quakers who influence the politics in Philadelphia. Not that Philadelphia is perfect, but I do think that New York is more conservative on these issues. It is very threatening to some major parts of New York, this call for the end of slavery. And it's, you know, people who can't imagine a world without slave labor. Who will pick that cotton? You know, who will work the sugar fields? This is centuries in the making in terms of this system of labor. And so trying to figure out how to overturn that and do something different, particularly when we know that indentured servants, white indentured servants did not come here to do that work. And so it, it really is a huge question. 
So it's funny because this podcast is called Dreams of Black Wall Street. We've heard a lot about Tulsa, but then one of the things my podcast does is to kind of shine a light on other sort of thriving communities. And what's interesting to me is that New York City was the original Black Wall Street. You know, the, the, the auction block, just a block away from what would become the financial capital of the world eventually. And so it's just an interesting juxtaposition and and that kind of explains why it's so hard for New Yorkers to let go of slavery and why it was such a struggle. And you talk about this tension between the classes and even in your book, it it seems like to me, you lay out this case where the treatment of people of African descent, Black people in New York almost solidifies their sort of position as the race on the lowest rung, the racial hierarchy in New York. And so even as slavery is ending gradually and Black folks are beginning to sort of find their place in this new looking world, they still have to struggle, right, with how people perceive them because, and you kind of alluded to this as well in your book, the British they treated slavery drastically different than the Dutch. Like slavery is slavery, right? And it's wrong, but it was drastically different. And you mentioned in your book how much slavery changed, which is even more fascinating that Black folks were able to even negotiate, right, for their freedom at that time. With respect to creating a free Black community during the period of emancipation, you write that free Blacks had moved into working class neighborhoods and there was no, like, sort of Black Harlem or, or, you know, Black section of the Bronx at this time. Black people were kind of, they might have had their own smaller communities, but it was not a segregated sort of city at that time, right? They were also establishing institutions, churches, mutual relief organizations, schools, the African free schools, with the help of some white folks, were really, I guess, the starting point for what you would see as a trend of upwardly mobile Black folks. So could you just explain what strategies Black people employed to assimilate into New York society as free people during this time? Right. One of the things, even with New York Manumission Society, as conservative as it was, it did want Black people to assimilate into New York society. And so they set up the African free schools as one way, and that became really the premier school of many of the New York Black abolitionists, early professionals. James McKean Smith, one of my favorite people, was one of the first Black doctors. Many people went to these schools and themselves became teachers business people, all kinds of the professional class. New Yorkers, Black New Yorkers also created their own churches. They were dealing with separate pews in white churches, and as was true in Boston and Philadelphia, most famously, in the 1790s, early 1800s, they began to create their own denominations. And within those churches, they also created their own schools as well. So it wasn't just at the African free schools, you have the Sunday schools and Adults to children, everybody went to school to learn to read. And historians believe that African-Americans for their class status actually sought out literacy in greater numbers than other groups of people at the same class status. And of course, I think the reason is clear. They're trying to protect themselves. They have to learn this society in a deeper way so that they can do things like go to court or figure out how to make their way. One of the difficult things during the emancipation period is that if enslavers 
it accrued to them if they had a skilled slave. It meant that their wealth was greater. But once people are free, then those white people are in competition with black people. So both their former enslavers, but also other white workers. And even under slavery, white people had complained about slave labor taking jobs away from them. So then you have this population of black workers who are free, who theoretically should just, you know, we'll go up for the same job. But white workers do not want to work alongside blacks. At least that's what the owners say. And so I think that during this time period, you have a kind of de-skilling of the black community where black people cannot hold on to skilled positions. It's hard for them to even say, get their children into apprenticeships to learn skills with white owners of businesses. And that is one of the central things that, well, both groups, really the conservative, the New York Manumission Society folks and the radical abolitionists try to work something out. And it is, it, it, it is not very successful. It is just not really possible to break that stranglehold. So whites use the fact that they had been enslaved and other racial ideas about black people to really keep them in this lower level. And you see, too, when other groups come in, particularly the Irish, as they gain greater status within the community, as, they, as some historians have called it, as they became white, Blacks and the Irish compete for the same lower level jobs. But ultimately, again, the Irish displace Blacks in those jobs as domestics, as waiters, things that Blacks used to have as their own, in a sense, that they occupied. Those jobs also become more difficult for them. author, historian, and Northwestern professor Leslie Harris described the unraveling of slavery as a stronghold on the economy and society of antebellum New York, due in large part to the actions of anti-slavery activists and abolitionists. One example of someone who used their life to fight against slavery after escaping bondage and finding refuge in New York for a time was a man named James C. Pennington. The Documenting the American South Digital Publishing Initiative, sponsored by the University Library at the University of North Carolina, has a brief description of James Pennington under its Northern American Slave Narratives subcategory. Quote, James W.C. Pennington, 1807 to 1870, was born Jim Pembroke, a slave on the Maryland plantation of Frisbee Tilgman. He escaped from slavery in 1828 at the age of 21, leaving his parents and 11 siblings, and made his way north, where he lived first in Pennsylvania before moving to New York and finally settling in Connecticut. As a free man, he changed his name, educated himself in Christian theology, and, feeling impelled to help relieve the suffering of his thousands of still captive brothers and sisters, became a Presbyterian minister who dedicated his life to the abolition of slavery. In 1834, he became the first African-American to attend classes at Yale University, and in 1841, he wrote what is thought to be the first history of African-Americans, the origin and history of the colored people. 
His autobiographical narrative was published in 1849 under the title, The Fugitive Blacksmith. He died in 1870 at the age of 63. End quote. Now, as a slave, Pennington was trained as a carpenter and blacksmith, and that's where the title of his autobiography, The Fugitive Blacksmith, is derived from. Now, I'll read a brief passage from Pennington's autobiography in which he describes the experience of seeing his father brutally beaten and his mother threatened. It was after these experiences that he resolved to flee captivity, a determination that would lead him north. This is in chapter one of Pennington's autobiography. Quote, in the spring of 1828, my master sold me to a Methodist man named Blank for the sum of $700. It soon proved that he had not work enough to keep me employed as a smith, and he offered me for sale again. On hearing of this, my old master repurchased me and proposed to me to undertake the carpenting business. I had been working at this trade six months with a white workman who was building a large barn when I left. I will now relate the abuses which occasioned me to fly. Three or four of our farmhands had their wives and families on other plantations. In such cases, it is the custom in Maryland to allow the men to go on Saturday evening to see their families, stay over the Sabbath, and return on Monday morning, not later than half an hour by sun. To overstay their time is a grave fault for which, especially at busy seasons, they are punished. One Monday morning, two of these men had not been so fortunate as to get home at the required time. One of them was an uncle of mine. Besides these, two young men who had no families and for whom no such provision of time was made, having gone somewhere to spend the Sabbath, were absent. My master was greatly irritated and had resolved to have, as he said, a general whipping match among them. Preparatory to this, he had a rope in his pocket and a cowhide in his hand, walking about the premises and speaking to everyone he met in a very insolent manner, and finding fault with some without just cause. My father, among other numerous and responsible duties, discharged that of shepherd to a large and valuable flock of merino sheep. This morning he was engaged in the tenderest of a shepherd's duties, a little lamb, not able to go alone, lost its mother. He was feeding it by hand. He had been keeping it in the house for several days. As he stooped over it in the yard with a vessel of new milk he had obtained with which to feed it, my master came along and without the least provocation began by asking, Basil, have you fed the flock? Yes, sir. Were you away yesterday? No, sir. Do you know why these boys have not got home this morning yet? No, sir, I have not seen any of them since Saturday night. By the eternal, I'll make them know their hour. The fact is, I have too many of you. My people are getting to be the most careless, lazy, and worthless in the country. Master, said my father, I'm always at my post. Monday morning never finds me off the plantation. Hush, Basil, I shall have to sell some of you, and then the rest will have enough to do. I have not work enough to keep you all tightly employed. I have too many of you. All this was said in an angry, threatening, and exceedingly insulting tone. My father was a high-spirited man, and feeling deeply the insult, replied to the last expression, If I am one too many, sir, give me a chance to get a purchaser, and I am willing to be sold when it may suit you. Basil, I told you to hush. And suiting the action to the word, he drew forth the cowhide, 
from under his arm, fell upon him with most savage cruelty and inflicted 15 or 20 severe strikes with all his strength over his shoulders and the small of his back. As he raised himself upon his toes and gave the last strike, he said, by the blank, I will make you know that I am master of your tongue as well as of your time. Being a tradesman and just at the time getting my breakfast, I was near enough to hear the insolent words that were spoken to my father and to hear, see, and even count the savage stripes inflicted upon him. Let me ask anyone of Anglo-Saxon blood and spirit, how would you expect a son to feel at such a sight? This act created an open rupture with our family. Each member felt the deep insult that had been inflicted upon our head. The spirit of the whole family was roused. We talked of it in our nightly gatherings and showed it on our daily melancholy aspect. The oppressor saw this and with the heartlessness that was in perfect keeping with the first insult, commenced a series of tauntings, threatenings, and insinuations with a view to crush the spirit of the whole family. Although it was some time after this event before I took the decisive step, yet in my mind and spirit, I never was a slave after it. Whenever I thought of the great contrast between my father's employment on that memorable Monday morning, feeding the little lamb, and the barbarous conduct of my master, I could not help cordially despising the proud abuser of my sire. And I believe he discovered it, for he seemed to have diligently sought an occasion against me. Many incidents occurred to convince me of this, too tedious to mention. But there is one I will mention, because it will serve to show the state of feeling that existed between us, and how it served to widen the already open breach. I was one day shoeing a horse in the shop yard. I had been stooping for some time under the weight of the horse, which was large and was very tired. Meanwhile, my master had taken his position on a little hill just in front of me and stood leaning back on his cane with his hat drawn over his eyes. I put down the horse's foot and straightened myself up to rest a moment. And without knowing that he was there, my eyes caught his. This threw him into a panic of rage and he would have it that I was watching him. What are you rolling your white eyes at me for, you lazy rascal? He came down upon me with his cane and laid on over my shoulders, arms, and legs about a dozen severe blows, so that my limbs and flesh were sore for several weeks. And then after several other offensive epithets, he left me. This affair my mother saw from her cottage, which was near. I being one of the oldest sons of my parents, our family was now mortified to the lowest degree. I'd always aimed to be trustworthy, and feeling a high degree of mechanical pride, I'd aim to do my work with dispatch and skill. My blacksmith's pride and taste was one thing that had reconciled me so long to remain a slave. I sought to distinguish myself in the finer branches of the business by invention and finish. I frequently tried my hand at making guns and pistols, putting blades in pin knives, making fancy hammers, hatchets, sword canes, etc., etc. Besides, I used to assist my father at night in making straw hats and willow baskets, by which means we supplied our family with little articles of food, clothing, and luxury, which slaves in the mildest form of the system never get from the master. But after this, I found that my mechanic's pleasure and pride were gone. I thought of nothing but the family disgrace under which we were smarting and how to get out of it." End quote.
episode, we'll dive into the Black elite in antebellum New York, specifically Manhattan. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. It helps us get the word out about this history and the work we're doing. Thanks for the support. Thank you.